Have you ever had an irrational fear? Something that you know you were afraid of and you couldn't really explain why you were afraid? Well, I had an explanation. I will not tell the whole story because I, I want to preach to you. But as, as a little boy, I had the misfortune of answering the door one Saturday morning and a, a lady had crossed the street from a neighbor's house where she had been mauled by the neighbor's Doberman Pinchers. And they had destroyed her arms. They had got her throat. And nobody knows how, but she, she was like 80 years old and she fought these dogs off and came to our house leaving this long trail of blood. And, uh, and for a long time after that, big dogs just caused me, my heart to just flutter. You know, It took me a long time. I, I think I'm over it now. That was a long time ago. But not too long after that, I was, you know, 10 years later, I was at... Uh, university uh, down in Greenville, and uh, I was out on visitation with one of my dearest friends. We're still very, very dear friends. And we were out in Lawrence, South Carolina, going door to door, uh, witnessing and handing out tracts for uh, the local church there. And all of a sudden, I grabbed my friend and I jerked him over it out of the road. We were walking down the road because there were no sidewalks, and I jerked him out of the road and I pulled him down behind a bush and he said, Sax, what are you doing? And I said, there's a dog out there. And there was this big dog. I mean, it was, it was a big dog. And it walked out in the middle of the road like it owned the road. And it was walking down the middle of the road. It was still like, you know, four blocks away. But I saw this dog. And I just, I just went into panic mode. And I grabbed my friend. And as we're, as we're hunkering down there behind the bush, he said, Saxon, this is the most ridiculous thing ever. And pretty soon we're laughing behind the bush. But I didn't come out until the dog was gone. You know, the dog turned and went down another road. And then I said, okay, we can go back to witnessing. And, uh, and, 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 and even as I was doing it, I knew how stupid it was. You know, I mean, sometimes you can't understand your own fear. And George Barna or someone did a survey years ago and asked people, what is the main reason you don't share the gospel with others? And you know what the number one reason was? Fear. Fear. Uh, what will they think of me? Will we still be friends after this? Uh, am I going to use the right words? This is someone's eternal destiny. It's a heavy weight. That is, these fears can be at all different levels. But fear presses us down. And the wonderful thing about the Bible is that it meets us right where we are. It knows we struggle with that. And in fact, we have a text in which if you look at verse 26, the Lord Jesus is going to say to us, Fear them not, therefore. And then in verse 28, and fear not them. And verse 31, fear ye not them. He seems to think we're going to be afraid of something. And so let me set the context. In fact, let me, let me prepare you. My introduction is half the sermon, and then the sermon is the other half of the sermon. So, so introductions are important. Stay with me. We need to get the context for these fear nots. Our text ultimately will be that section of this chapter. But let me back up a little bit. Matthew is, is a very unusual gospel in that Mark and Luke and John generally tell the story of Christ's life sequentially, like a biography would. You know, they just sort of tell story, then story, then story. And every once in a while, they'll rearrange a little bit for thematic purposes. But by and large, they tell you the story sequentially. You come to Matthew, and other than Jesus being born at the beginning and dying and rising at the end, he could not care less about of a chronology. He just kind of puts things together to teach theology. And in chapters 5, and he organizes the whole book around five great discourses. And the first of those is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. The second one is here in chapter 10. And then the third, because you'll want to know, are the kingdom parables in chapter 13. And then you've got this great church discourse in chapter 18. 
and then the Olivet Discourse in 24 and 25. And at the end of every discourse, Matthew writes, and when he had finished these sayings, he, and then he goes on to something else. So he organizes the whole book around those five discourses with narratives that attach to them that prepare us for the cross. Chapters 8 and 9 are the narrative that prepares us for chapter 10. And what Matthew does in these two chapters is he gathers ten miracle stories, which he divides into three sets, and he intersperses between the miracle stories discipleship messages, that where Jesus calls people to follow him. And what you get out of these two chapters, where he shows his authority over leprosy, and over death, and over fever, and over storms, and then he has the authority to call disciples and say, follow me. What you get from these two chapters is that he has authority. And that's how the Sermon on the Mount ended, remember? He teaches with authority and not as the scribes. And then we see this authority laid out for us for two chapters. And then you get to the end of chapter 9. And in verse 35, Jesus is going about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And he sees the multitudes and he's moved with compassion because they're fainting and they're scattered abroad as sheep that have no shepherd and he says to his disciples this group who are following him the harvest truly is plenteous but the laborers are few how should you respond pray pray therefore that the lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest and that brings us to chapter 10 and remember the chapter divisions were added you know seven or eight hundred years after this was written and so as we enter into this next chapter He calls together 12 of the disciples. There are a number of people who have been following him. He selects 12 of them. Luke tells us he prayed all night before he did this. And he calls together 12 of them. And he says, you guys now are ready to not just learn, which is what a disciple does. You're ready to go. And he calls them, verse 2, apostles. This is the one and only time in the whole book of Matthew that the word apostle is used. And he says, 12 of you now are ready to be sent to carry this message. We get their names. And then in verse 5, the Lord Jesus preaches a commissioning sermon over the 12. I'm sending you forth and you need to be ready for your mission. And when you start reading this, it doesn't really seem like it applies to you and me very much. Because what he's going to do is he's going to send them out on a short-term mission. They're going to be back with him by the beginning of chapter 12. We don't know how long this short-term mission went. Was it weeks? Was it a month or two? It couldn't have been too long. His whole ministry is only three and a half years. But he wants to get the word out across Galilee. And he can only be at one place at one time. So he selects 12. And he says, go and visit the villages of Israel and declare the message. So let's look at this first part of the sermon. Because this first part of the sermon sounds like it's simply telling us about their short-term mission. Go not in the way of the Gentiles. So the first thing he tells them is, don't evangelize Gentiles. Well, that does not apply to you and me. We're Gentiles, and we were sent to evangelize the whole world, right? But in their short-term mission, Israel is going to be given the first chance. This declaration of the drawing near kingdom is for Israel. And what's Israel going to do with it? Don't even go into the cities of Samaritans. Now, this is long after the Lord Jesus must needs go through Samaria, and he's already won the Samaritan woman and the whole village of Sychar. But for this short-term task, I don't want you going to Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The message they preach is exactly the same message that Jesus Christ, and before him, John the Baptist, came preaching. Repent, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. 
And then He gives them power. We saw that back in verse 1. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. And verse 8 says, Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. These are kingdom demonstrations. When the Messiah comes, this is the kind of stuff that's going to happen. God's power is going to break out. Kingdom power is going to break out. And you can read about it in Isaiah 25 or Isaiah 35 or Isaiah 61 or a lot of other places. And he takes the 12 and he says, you go out and you do this so that people will know the king has arrived. And don't worry about your provisions. Don't take gold, silver as money. Don't put brass in your money bags. In fact, you don't even need a money bag. Uh, The King James has the word scrip. A scrip is a money bag. You don't need to carry one. Don't take an extra coat. Don't take extra shoes. Don't take an extra staff. Uh, you're going to go into cities and towns. Middle Eastern hospitality will take care of you. And, uh, and if they don't, shake off the dust and go somewhere else. And almost nothing we're reading sounds like the book of Acts. Right? This was a short-term mission. You say, well, Saxon, why are you preaching us on something that doesn't apply to us? Well, stay with me. Verse 14. And some people won't receive you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words... When you depart out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. It'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. He begins to suggest that as they go about this short-term mission, not everybody is going to welcome them. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be friction. There's going to be challenge. And that's the first signal that this sermon is not just going to be about the short-term mission. 5 through 16 is getting them ready for the next few months. But when he brings up opposition, he begins to broaden the purpose of the sermon. Notice verse 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Beware of men. They will deliver you up to the councils. They will scourge you in their synagogues. You shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake. Do you suppose that happened over the three months or so they were going around Galilee? Probably not. Probably not. In fact, when they report back to him, they're all happiness. Wow, this has been amazing. But it's coming because after Jesus Christ rises from the dead, they're going to continue this mission. And the, and the stakes are going to get higher and higher and higher. The opposition is going to get more and more severe. And when you read a verse like, you shall be brought before governors, you shall be brought before kings, and, and the translation I'm reading says, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. Almost certainly that means for a testimony to them and the Gentiles. That is, earlier in the sermon he said, don't go to Gentiles. Now he's saying, and by the way, as the opposition grows and grows and grows, you're going to be witnessing to Gentiles. Gentiles are going to see it. And it's hard not to think of Paul, who stands before Felix and Festus and Herod Agrippa, and he goes to Rome and he, and he confronts Caesar's household. This is coming. This is what the church has been doing ever since. And he says, when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak. Well, praise God, I don't really like preparing to speak. No, this is not saying that we don't have to prepare to speak. This is saying that in a crisis, when, when you don't have any time, suddenly they're on you. You know what? It's God who's doing all the work anyway. Your preparation is not the key factor. The Holy Spirit will give you what you need in that hour. It's not you who speak. It's the Spirit of your Father who speaketh in you. Brother, you still with me? Verse 21, brother, I'm still in the introduction, but bear with me. Brother shall deliver up brother to death. 
Fathers shall give up their children. Children shall rise up against their parents. They shall cause their parents to be put to death. You shall be hated of all for My name's sake. He that endures to the end shall be saved. We are suddenly in great tribulation. We are suddenly hearing the exact same things we're going to hear when we read the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He that endures to the end shall be saved is a promise directly to believers during the tribulation era. And Christ is already getting them ready for that. And that's how we understand verse 23. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. I say to you, you will not have fully evangelized Israel till the Son of Man returns. Jewish evangelism shall continue for this entire dispensation. Which, by the way, is another promise that Israel is going to survive this entire dispensation. And Jewish evangelism is ongoing. So why do I say all that? This second half of the sermon is picked up in Matthew 28, 18-20. The Great Commission is telling the Israelites, telling the apostles, I'm sorry, to pick up where they left off. They were learning how to be evangelists back in chapter 10. But He prepares them for the short-term mission. He prepares them for the long-time mission. The Great Commission. And if I'm right about that, and I am, all right, this, this is what's going on here, then this text is for you and me. This is our commission. We're still evangelizing the Jew first and also the Greek. We're still going out and we're still going to face opposition. This is for us. This is a microcosm. This is instructions for the Great Commission. And so my text begins in verse 24. So you all ready for the text now? That's the context. The disciple, you and I, are not above our master, nor the servant, the slave, above his Lord, his owner. It is enough. It is sufficient. It is fitting for the disciple that he be as his master. It is sufficient. It is right for the servant to be as his Lord. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, that would be Jesus himself. If they've called me Beelzebul, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore. All right, so... I want to give you, the Lord Jesus is going to give us this morning, reasons that we need not fear as we carry out the commission. Reasons that we need not fear as we carry out the commission. He knows, the Lord knows, that He's giving us a job that many of us recoil from. I mean, I won't have a show of hands, but if I were to ask, how many of you by nature enjoy convincing people to buy things, enjoy salesmanship? Well, there are going to be a few people in here who kind of enjoy salesmanship. Most of us hate that. Most of us hate convincing people of things. Now, the truth of the matter is, we like to convince people to root for our favorite team. You know, we, like to conv- we like conversation in which we're compelling. But once I start trying to sell something, I, it's not, it's not my, I don't want to invade that person's space. We don't like that. And so we kind of recoil from it. And yet, every single believer is called to be an ambassador. An ambassador. And we fear And the Lord Jesus is going to give us reasons not to fear. And the first one is in some ways the most beautiful of these reasons, although I hope you are, I hope you appreciate each of them. He says, do not fear because when you carry the gospel, you are being most like me. You are being most like me. Don't you want to be like Jesus? And we talk about being like Jesus all the time. We talk about Christ's likeness all the time. We talk about that pursuit. The New Testament emphasizes this. Romans 8.17, Paul says, If we suffer with Him, we shall reign with Him. It's all about being with Him. Philippians 3.10, The purpose of my life is to know Him. And the 
power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings be made conformable to His death. First Peter 3.13 Peter says, when we suffer, we are sharers in Christ's sufferings. So if we're going to be like Christ, what are we going to experience? The contradiction or hostility of sinners against ourselves. I had a friend years ago who wrote a book called Swimming Upstream in a Downstream World. And that's what we are. That's what we do. We think differently. Our values are different. Our perspectives are different. If we fit in, then we are being corrupted. Now, I don't mean we separate because we're weird or odd or obnoxious. But we are not worldly. And yet, we're in the world trying to convince them to follow Christ. And Christ came preaching a message. His entire message ran cross-grain with how the world thought. And therefore, they opposed Him. They rejected Him. They killed Him. We killed Him. And so the first reason we shouldn't fear is because we want to be like Jesus and the suffering that comes on us for speaking for Him is one of the ways we're like Jesus. For me to say, I want to be like Christ and then recoil and hide from all the things that He did that brought opposition to Himself would be a contradiction. Yeah, if I speak up, they'll get angry. Yeah, Christ spoke up and they got angry with Him. But I want to be like Christ. I want the fellowship of His sufferings. I say I want. Ideally, I want. I'm just like you. I kind of want the rosy side of Christ, but not so much the persecuted side of Christ. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. You want to be like me? Well, they called me Beelzebul. They'll do do the same thing to you. Don't be afraid. Number two. Verse 26 continues. You're, You're looking at your Bibles, please. For, here's another reason. Fear them not. Therefore, the therefore looks back to 24 and 25. The for gives us a second reason. For, there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak ye in the light. What you hear in the ear, preach ye upon the housetops. Here's another reason we should not be afraid to share the gospel. We've been given a message that we cannot keep to ourselves. That's not what it's for. Now, they had flat roofs back then, and they would go up on the roofs, and they would sun themselves and whatever, and they would enjoy that space. But what they didn't do, as far as we know, is stand on rooftops Declaring messages to people who walk, I mean, that, would, that would be considered odd. So Christ is using hyperbole here. He's saying, listen, this is so important that you might have to go up on a roof to proclaim it. But do that. I'm whispering in your ears. I'm pulling you aside and I'm teaching you. And I'm instructing you. And I'm filling your heart and mind with truth. Now, what are you going to do with that truth? What do you do with what Pastor St. Lawrence teaches you every Sunday? What are you going to do with the admonitions you've received from Brother O this weekend? What are we going to do with truth as we receive it? Well, it's got to percolate in our own hearts and minds so that we are being transformed by it. And then it just flows out. We share it with others. It is too important. What we gain privately from Christ is too important to keep to ourselves. We want to share it as widely as possible. We must not let fear shut our mouths. In 1560... Uh, One of my heroes from the Reformation was John Knox. And John Knox uh, had been chased out of Scotland. And he knew that if he went back, they were going to kill him. Uh, They had burned him in effigy already. And they were just waiting for him to show his face and they were going to kill him. And he went back anyway. Expected to die within months. Uh, There was a long line of Scottish martyrs before him. And he went back and the archbishop issued a challenge and said, if John Knox presents himself to the preaching place in his town and principal church, I want him to be saluted with a dozen muskets. And Knox put out a public letter. This was not for friends. This was for Scotland. He said, as for the fear of danger that may come to me, let no man be solicitous. My life is in the custody of him whose glory I seek. 
Therefore, I cannot so fear their boast or tyranny that I will cease from doing my duty when of His mercy He offers me the occasion. He's put the path in front of me. That path looks like it's going to involve suffering. Well, fine. Well, fine. Because God's in control, not the archbishop. And so we have a message that we can't keep to ourselves. God forbid that we learn anything from the Bible for the sole purpose of having knowledge. Brother O emphasized the knowledge we need. Yeah, well, that knowledge is supposed to be flowing through us, not just into us. But then the Lord Jesus goes on. So what was the first reason? Our identity with Christ, which involves identity with His sufferings. Second reason? We have a message that is too precious and important to keep to ourselves. We should be itching to share it with someone. And then there's a third reason. And this one's a little bit sobering. I'll read the verses. I I, I don't need a lot of explanation here. Verse 28. And fear not. Here's another reason not to fear. Fear not those who... What does it say? Kill the body. That's what it says. He doesn't even say, fear not those who might be able to kill you. He says, fear not those who kill you. (laughs) Fear not those who kill the body. Because they're not able to kill your soul. Fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. All right, There's something ironic here in a passage about trying to settle our fears. (laughs) Don't be afraid. They can kill you. But what replaces the fear of those who can kill us? The fear of someone who's way bigger than they are. The fear of someone who controls our eternal destinies. If a boy is at school and there's a bully who's threatening him, maybe some bullies who say, oh, you're going to help us do wrong or we're going to beat you up. How can he overcome the fear of those bullies? Well, being more afraid of the principal. Being more afraid of his parents. Being more afraid of the consequences of doing wrong. One fear has to drive out the other fear. And the Scriptures are full of fear God. Fear God. One of my favorite examples of this is in Isaiah chapter 8. Ahaz is this evil king, and he's being threatened by his two northern neighbors, Israel and Aram in Damascus. And these two kingdoms, who are bigger and stronger than Judah is, are saying, you join our confederacy against Assyria, or we're going to come down and wipe you out. And God sends Isaiah to Ahaz. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. You fear God the way you should. You won't worry too much about Israel and Aram. God is a whole lot bigger and stronger than Israel and Aram. Fearing God, having Him big, will make everything else small. And that fear, which closes our mouths, which causes us to not be willing to take these bold steps, to not be willing to break out of our comfort zone. That fear that, that straps us. We can be liberated from that fear by God getting bigger and bigger and bigger, doing what Dr. Rowe recommended this morning, developing a robust theology, not from some lecture you hear from somebody, but from yourself being in the Word of God and seeing how big God is there. Fear Him. Fear Him. You say, well, that's not a very encouraging message. I thought we were all supposed to be happy. Well, let's go on to the next reason. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? A farthing was a very small coin. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. The hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, this is not describing God's omniscience. We're not learning how smart God is because he can keep count of everybody's hairs. It's talking about his care, right? It's talking about how much he, I mean, he cares for sparrows. I think He cares for me. Do you remember where this thought has already come up in the book of Matthew? Different context. Back in chapter 6, He says, Stop worrying. Stop taking thought for tomorrow. God cares for the sparrows. He'll care for you. 
And the same logic that should correct our worrying should correct our fear. Fear not, therefore, verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you're more valuable than many sparrows. Look at how the Bible puts two things side by side. The first argument is, don't fear man, fear God. And then the next argument is, you don't need to be afraid, you've got God. Fear not, therefore. There are 23 passages in the New Testament that say, fear not, I am here, God says. Most of those are in the Old Testament. In fact, all but the one in Revelation 1.17. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I'm in control. So the Lord has given us a strong reason to fear God. Namely, He's in control. And then He gives us a strong reason not to fear anything else. He loves and cares for us. I don't know if you've made this connection. I hope you have. But one of the reasons that we should open our mouths and speak even more afraid is we should be overwhelmed by this consciousness that God loves me too much to allow me to, do, to mess up anything eternal. That is, he's, he's got all the tomorrows under control. And so I can step out boldly when I'm in His will, and when I'm speaking His name, I'm in His will. When I'm stepping out to speak for the Lord, He's got my back. He's going to care for me. He loves me. He loves you. I fear God who loves me. Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews got this. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that I may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do unto me. That boldness flows out of my consciousness of being loved. You say, well, which is it? Is it this fear of God's power or is this love driven by His, His care for me? And the answer is yes, yes. And they coexist in the heart of every true Christian. God is so big! And yet that, huge, that, that, that God who fills heaven and earth loves little old David Saxon. And I'm going to be afraid to talk to my neighbor? God's really small when I'm afraid to talk to my neighbor. And there's one more reason. There's one more reason as our text uh, comes near its end. Now, Christ is going to go on in the rest of the chapter to describe the nature of servanthood and the rewards of a servant. I encourage you to look at those. I'm going to stop here in 32 and 33. Whosoever, therefore. we got another therefore. And the therefores are linking us to this theme of fear. Whoever, therefore, shall confess me before men. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. I love Christ. You should too, and here's why. Whoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Wow, this is a sobering couple of verses. In fact, we need to wrestle with them. Does this mean that if I find myself in a difficult spot and I've got this opportunity to share my faith, and I chicken out right then. And I, the moment passes and I don't speak up for the Lord. Well, then I'm going to go to hell because he's going to deny me before the Father. How do we absolutely know that that's not what this means? What famous person denied Christ? Maybe like three times. Yeah, but Jesus Christ, before he ever did it, said, I've prayed for you, Simon, because Satan is going to sift you like wheat, but your faith is not going to fail. And after, you're going to have an opportunity to strengthen your brothers. That is, I'm going to build leadership in you through your very failure. Which doesn't give Peter an excuse for his failure. But he belongs to Christ. And Christ can take that blown moment and make a, a rock that you can build a church on out of it. That's what he did for Peter. And so we know that this teaching is not saying a true believer can lose his salvation. Well, I'm encouraged by that because I've blown it. 
All right, I have, I have utterly failed this text on more occasions than I would like to recount. I've allowed the fear of man to close my mouth. But he still loves me. I'm still his. He will never deny me before the Father. But what is the text teaching? Well, there's an implied imperative. The stakes are pretty high. The Lord Jesus expects me to own him before men. But furthermore, I believe this text is teaching our, our nature as Christians. And let me explain this a little bit. I might see somebody on Maranatha's campus doing some behavior, and a behavior that's not allowed. And I might say to that person, Maranatha students don't do that. Well, technically speaking, I'm incorrect because a Maranatha student just did it, right? I mean, there's, there's something, there's, there's a logical flaw there. But what I'm actually saying is that when you do something like that, you're not acting like a Maranatha student. Maranatha students, by definition, don't do that. And when they occasionally do, they're acting, acting un-Maranatha. Unfortunately, everybody at Maranatha occasionally acts un-Maranatha. But that's not what we do here. That, that's a reasonable line of thinking, isn't it? Every, everything that has identity works that way. Because none of us ever fulfill our identity perfectly. And yet, that's not what we do here. The student, and, and, and by the way, this... I believe in eternal security, so don't follow this analogy too far. But the student who just always did those things would not long be a Maranatha student because they're not living like a Maranatha student. That's not what we do here. And I believe this teaching is saying that, you know what? Here's, there's, here's how disciples live. The real deal. They confess me before men. It's the, the fakes. It's the ones who have played lip service, who are not really followers. They're the ones who will ultimately be denied. There was a... Teddy Roosevelt had a son, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. And Theodore Roosevelt Jr., like his dad, uh, liked the military, and he went into the military and fought his way through World War I. And then he rose between the wars to be a uh, brigadier general. And in World War II, being Teddy Roosevelt Jr., he was one of the only generals in the American armed forces who fought with his men across North Africa and into Italy. And then it was time for D-Day. And they were assigning his brigade to Utah Beach. And, Eisen, and uh, Eisenhower had a meeting uh, set up by Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. And Roosevelt said, I want to go on Utah Beach with my men. And Eisenhower said, Theodore, you're 57 and, and you've got crippling arthritis. I mean, you had to drag yourself into my office. I, no, I'm not letting you go on the beach of Utah. The Utah Beach, you know what I mean. And Theodore Roosevelt said, quote, my men expected of me, I'm the son of Theodore Roosevelt. End of conversation. That's who I am. I'm not a general who sits in an office watching people land on the beach. I'll be in front of my men. And if I die, that's who I am. It's my identity. And he did. He did. He landed on Utah Beach with his brigade. And he survived it. Ironically, a month later, he died of a heart attack in Normandy. But he went on the beach leading his men into combat. Who are we as Christians? What is our identity? We are confessors of Christ. We are confessors of Christ. And we must not be afraid to be who we are. We must not. I am a Christian. And what it means to be a Christian is to be an ambassador, to be a spokesman, to be a representative. So we've been given five really good reasons not to fear. And I struggle with all of them. We should not fear because our sufferings bring us into conformity with, unity with Jesus Christ. And that's what I want more than anything. I want to be like Christ. And yet, I don't really want to suffer. But the two go together. Our sufferings come from a message that 
must be published. What do you and I believe? Who needs to hear it? Our fear is because we have forgotten that God determines our destiny, not anyone else. Nobody can hurt us. They can kill us, but they can't hurt us. They can't take anything from us of eternal value. We only lose things of eternal value when we fail to fear God. We do not fear because God loves us. He doesn't throw us away. He's not one of those generals in World War I who said, all right, climb out of the trench and go charging those machine gun nests. No, He loves us too much to do that. He never wastes us. He uses us as in the battle. And if we die, it's because He can be glorified and people can be benefited. But He will not throw us away. He is integrally interested in His work and He loves us and values us. And so we don't need to be afraid. And our proclamation proclaims that we are Christian. And when we are afraid to speak, then who knows we're Christian? We lose our identity. We're just one of the people at the factory. We're just one of the people in Watertown. We're just one of the people on the, one of the neighbors on the street. But who are we really? Well, we're a people who belong to heaven. And our identity is to be confessors of this Christ. So let us say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why am I? And by the way, the word ashamed there doesn't mean I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. That's not what that word means at all. That word means the gospel will never leave me high and dry. I will never be disappointed by the gospel. The gospel does what the gospel says it will do. I will not get to the end of a life of speaking the gospel and then find out that, oh, rats, I have the wrong message. No, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Have you seen that? Have you seen somebody transformed by the gospel? Every time a life is transformed, it's further evidence that the gospel is what God says it is. It's to the Jew first and also to the Greeks, it's to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, beginning and ending with faith, as it is written in the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, the justified man shall live by faith. So let us not fear. Let us put fear to death. We have very good reason to. This was a sermon given to apostles. Uh, you're not apostles. I don't even know if you're all believers. Uh, You should be afraid if you're not a believer because your destiny is in the hands of the same God who holds His children. And He loves you too if you're not a believer. But your sins have separated between you and your God. And if you are not certain you are a believer, as I said last night, please don't let this camp come and go uncertain of your eternal destiny. You should be afraid if you are not saved. But if you're a believer, you have a different kind of fear. A fear that perfectly meshes with love. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Fear not, therefore. Thank you, Lord, for this text. The Lord Jesus wants us to speak for Him. He has commissioned us to speak for Him. He has sent us out to make disciples of all the nations. And Lord, He knew as He looked at those men standing around Him 1900 and some years ago, that they were afraid. That they were scared of speaking up for You. They were people just like us. Lord, help us not to fear. Overcome fear in our lives. Be bigger in our eyes than people are. Help us to be consumed by a message that must be given. Give us a passion to be like Christ in the fellowship of His suffering. Help us, Lord, to recognize every time we feel threatened how much You love us. And help us, Lord, to identify ourselves as Christians by confessing Your name. And I pray it in Jesus' name and for His sake.